I'm Rabbi Daniel Scher. I'm excited to talk about prayer with you. And I'll tell you, this class is one that I've had a motivation to teach for at least a decade because I had a really hard time when I got to rabbinical school and realized I don't know what most of these prayers mean. I had a really good conservative upbringing. I knew the prayers. I knew three versions of every prayer. I knew probably 15 Micha Mocha, at least the two main melody of Shema that we talk about. Like I knew how to pray, but I did not understand prayer. And I remember being kind of torn and frustrated by that notion that I somehow knew the mechanics of prayer without understanding the meaning behind them or how they were designed or why we use those words. And I found all kinds of ways to justify that, whether it be through prayer as mantra or whether it be prayer as a unifying set of words that it doesn't matter what they mean, it matters that all Jews say them. I really uh, drank every different Kool-Aid they gave me about how to grapple with not knowing the prayers But at some point, I really had to stop and question, what is the value of knowing how to do all these prayers without understanding their meaning? And that's actually a theological choice that the different forms of Judaism even take on things. If you ask someone uh, from an Orthodox background what text you start to study with, they don't start with Genesis. Anyone know what they start with? They start with Leviticus. They start with a set of rules to make sure that they've checked the box and do the rules, and then you can figure out why later. Once you do it, then you can start to dig deeper and figure out why. And that's a choice. I'm not even saying it's necessarily a wrong choice. It's a choice of how to engage with your tradition. And so there's the one side that says that's the way we approach prayer. Learn the prayers, learn the melodies that we use, learn to feel that appreciation of hearing other voices say the prayers, and later you can dive in deeper. And you know what? I'm I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that when it comes to our youngest kids learning prayer. I'm okay with that when it comes to preparation for bar and bat mitzvah, because the secret that we don't always want to acknowledge, because it's easiest when we have things like the dangling carrot of a bar and bat mitzvah, is that Judaism is not an adolescent religion. It is an adult's religion. We have to teach them to fall in love with the tradition. We have to give them the mechanics of these prayers. But to actually understand their meaning requires a depth and a knowledge of being an adult. And so now that's what we're going to begin to do. Many of us will know some forms and pieces of history with these different prayers, but we're going to take a deeper dive into the origin of our prayers. So before we get too far into one specific prayer, the rest of the series, by the way, we will jump into a specific prayer, uh, either one or two per class. Today, I want to have a, a larger overview to the idea, and then we'll jump into a blessing after that. Um, prayer. What constitutes prayer in our tradition? Any ideas? By the way, this is a hybrid class. I'll take ideas either from uh, the Zoom or the in-person group, what constitutes prayer? Jonathan Sachs says, channeling the divine. Okay, channeling the divine. Opening ourselves to become a vehicle for the divine and the best in us. Uh, There's also prayer of petition, asking for stuff. But if you don't think there's somebody there who can answer that prayer... 
Or we always, people say, you know, God doesn't answer prayer. Well, other people say, well, sometimes God says no. But anyhow, we think of prayer as asking for stuff. And then prayer can also be clarifying what it is we're about and what values we have and what we would like to happen in our lives. And there are people who say it's more important for us to listen to prayer than for God to listen to prayer, whatever that means. So there's, so even inside of that uh, explanation, it's that prayer is somehow a form of communication, right? That like, whether it be communicating out to the world, whether not communicating with your own consciousness, whether it be communicating with God, that prayer is some form of communication. Lawrence Hoffman, who's a rabbi who taught at HUC New York for many, many years, uh, says that prayer is Jewish art. It's the expression of the Jewish soul. These are great answers. They don't answer the question as to like, what is prayer? What constitutes prayer? And so the rabbis both give you an answer and create a hesitation inside the answer all at once. Prayer is a structured uh, type of sentence, right? Baruch Ata Adonai is a blessing. Is a blessing a prayer, right? The first question is, is a blessing a prayer? The answer is yes and Right? A blessing is a blessing. A prayer is a prayer. The rabbis say that prayer is the choices that we've used and then codified into a set of liturgy that we use as an expression of faith. So that can be a blessing that the rabbis write. That can be an excerpt of Torah or other text. Or that can be, for instance, on a Friday night, and many of you have heard me talk about this during services, that could be Kabbalat Shabbat, where we have Lachadodi, which is simply put, love poetry written 600 years ago. It's not from Torah. It's not from Talmud. It's it's love poetry that was so powerful that it was chosen to be codified into the last prayer service that we codified, which was Kabbalat Shabbat. So if prayer is all of these different things, then we unfortunately have to look at all of the tradition when understanding how a prayer is structured. Yeah. You said Lachadodi was one of the last prayers that we codified. What do you mean by codified? So in our prayer books, there are standardizations across prayer books, and there's things that are not standard across prayer books. If you open the Reconstructionist prayer book or the Reformed prayer book, you see some different words in there that definitely don't exist in an Orthodox prayer book. But there are also prayers that exist in all prayer books. So for instance, Kabbalat Shabbat was the last codified, sealed, canonized set of prayers that would be agreed from across Judaism as prayer. And that's the latest one, and it's done like 500 years ago, right? So after that, we might add poetry into our blessings. We might take a different excerpt of Torah and lift it up as prayer. We might change wording around, but we would be making that choice. Maybe it'll catch on, maybe it won't. A good example of that is if you look at the Amidah blessings, if you look at the prayer book I grew up with, Sidor Sim Shalom, the prayer book only had the forefathers. By the time I was in high school, it was a trend to push back and add the, the foremothers into it, but the prayer book didn't have it. But the reform one did. And the new prayer book from the conservative movement has a page that has it and has a page that doesn't. But if you open up an Orthodox prayer book, there is not the Imahot in there. So even though it should be, let me repeat, it should be in all prayer books, that is still something that denominationally is is kind of fought and wrestled with. Lachado D is in every prayer book. 
So there came a time where our choices became more denominational and, and less universal. The prayers that we're going to look at are almost exclusively ones that are agreed upon universally. And then the way we interpret them might be the change in our experience. Some things in the prayer book are prayers that were written by rabbis. Other things are portions of Torah. Other things come from other places. And they're very interesting. There are some, quote, prayers that are actually pieced together like a quilt, like a patchwork quilt from lines from the Psalms. Yes, there is. And unfortunately, a lot of prayer books don't indicate where the things come from. So we tend to think that it's just a liturgy that somebody wrote. But actually, whichever prayer book you're talking about, I believe, is uh, a compendium that was put together. Things were added. Things were dropped uh, over a period of time. 100%. I mean, Shema is from Deuteronomy. Correct. Vihafta is from Deuteronomy. Well, Vihafta is from where? Deuteronomy. Numbers. Deuteronomy. Right, so we have it's two different pieces. It depends what you're calling the Ahafta, oh, right? The so Shema and, and her Ahafta. blessings is both Deuteronomy right. and Numbers. I thought the right? I thought the tzitzit was only the one for Numbers, but I but when when the rabbis right. classify Shema and her oh. blessings as Ahafta, that's the full thing is Ahafta. You're talking about the first paragraph of Ahafta, right? But that's actually the exact proof, right? A paragraph to paragraph jumps in where the where the quotation comes from. So that's actually the prayer that we're going to look at tonight is the Shema. And I think the reason for that is that it also gives the most clue into, like I said before, where the core meaning behind prayer speaks to theology and where we have to choose as prayers how we want to take the history of the prayer. Do we want to take it at its literal core and the way it's designed? Is it something that for us is more of a mantra? Look, we'll wrestle with these things over the course of this class because you bring in prayers like Alenu and you have to decide if the political nature of Alenu was worth removing it from service, which many did, or changing the second paragraph of it, which many did. You open a reform prayer book, they have three options of the second paragraph all on the same page. It's like, it's a disaster if you let everyone read the different ones at once, but like if you choose and guide people along, it works. And so these different prayers make a lot of choices. And the last thing I'll say before jumping in is that we have experienced a moment where a denomination has chosen to change it, much like the Imahot. One of those examples is both Kiddush and the blessing before and after Torah reading. In a Reconstructionist congregation, we change the words to Asher Kervanu La'avodato instead of Asher Baharbanu Mikol Ha'amim. Baharbanu Mikol Ha'amim meant the people that were chosen from all of the world. And Asher Kervanu La'avodato means the people that were drawn closer to the work, drawn closer to the holy work. That was because the Reconstructionist movement said, even if like there's a little bit of this, like we have a deep relationship chosenness piece, the idea of chosenness is elitist and exclusive and doesn't work. Uh, and that was the, the mentality. I, as, as Rabbi Daniel, I don't know exactly where I land on that because I was chosen to take the trash out growing up. And I did not think that that meant my parents loved me more. I thought that meant my brothers were irresponsible, right? It didn't mean that I was somehow better. It meant you were stuck doing it. And there is a world, and there's actually a piece of Jewish theology that says it's not about love. It's about the fact that God could make us do it, right? There's a story in which they say that when the 
Rab, uh, when when God speaks to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, it's not just that they went to a mountain and they were in awe. It's that God lifted the mountain above their heads and said, do you want to be the chosen people? And they looked up and thought, well, there's only one answer that we can give to this, right? And that completely changes the story of chosenness. So the background that you have does change your interpretation of blessing. So let's begin with the Shema. The Shema is six words. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Who can tell me what Shema means? Listen, okay. Or hear. Understand. understand. Ooh, good. We're in the first word so far. We're at four interpretations. This is lovely. Right? Listen, understand, hear something. But who is the next word? Shema Yisrael. Who is the prayer talking to? The people. Okay. Let's pause there. Now, Adonai Eloheinu. What does that mean? Adonai, the name of our God, or the placeholder name, Adonai, Eloheinu, is our God. And then the next line is Adonai, Echad. Adonai is one. Okay, let's start with the snarkiest of comments first and work our way into the more theological. The snarkiest, if we have one God, and that God is Adonai, why do we need to say Adonai is our God? Our God implies... There are other gods. And if you've just implied there are other gods, why would the next thing out of your mouth be, there's one God? Right? That's like saying, this is my favorite flavor of soda water. The only soda water. No, that's not true. You just defined that there is something else out there. You can't have what is possessively yours unless there's an implication that there is something else that belongs to others. And we know that that was going to be a grand issue inside of the formation of our tradition. You go all the way back to the beginning writing of our stories, and you look inside of Genesis. Inside of Genesis, there is a line in the first three lines that talks about tahom. Anyone ever remember this word from the first few words? What does tahom mean in our text? Does anyone know? It's referring to this idea... To avoid or to darkness is the translation in Hebrew. Tahom is the name of a Mesopotamian god. Now, do you think they just accidentally use the same name to refer to a void or a chaos or a darkness as the name of a god from a group that wasn't that far away? Or do you think the creators of the tradition were sliding a little little insult and jab in there that right at the beginning of the story as we talk about God creating the world they're going to use the name of another God inside of it which says to the Mesopotamians even if you did believe in your little Tahom God our God created that God so neener 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 <laughs> right even if it wasn't just this that there was somehow this like poke and prod and I, I, I liken it to the fact that many people know the famous Shakespeare quote about a rose right a rose is what which, which smell? Just as sweet. The Rose Theater was a competing theater in Shakespeare time. And guess what? They were not very sanitary. They didn't clean up nearly as often. All the picnics sitting outside, stuff would rot. It smelled. That line was a jab to the competing theater, right in the middle of romance, to say, you smell. And only the theater goers that knew it, that knew the Rose Theater as well, knew the snarky undertone that Shakespeare was using. Yeah. Elohim, which is used for God, is actually a plural. 
And it says there are many times, including in the Ten Commandments, where God says to Moses and the Israelites, don't worship other gods. Correct. And if God is saying don't worship other gods, that means acknowledges there are other gods. So there's a question, does Adonai Echod mean there's only one God or only one God for us? Well, so here's the problem. Though I love that interpretation, we just had a line, Eloheinu. We just had a grammatical structure that taught us our God. So if it was the one God to us, it would be Shelanu. It'd be Adonai Echad Shelanu. There is one God that is for us, but that's not what it says. So instead, you have three pieces, two words each, that likely are being compiled to mean something entirely new. Adonai, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel. Now, I can go off on a 30-minute lecture about the idea that prayer is supposed to be directed towards God. And the first prayer we're looking at is a prayer that is overtly, I mean, blatantly directed towards people. But Hero Israel actually comes up quite a few times in Deuteronomy because Moses is giving grand speeches. And so if you remember that in the context what we're talking about in this moment is less about the idea of this prayer is directed towards God and more about the idea that there is something worthy of prayer in the way we address our people, in the way we address the group that we're committed to. That's the end of Moses' story. He knows he's not going into the land of Israel. He's giving all of these last guidances and big ambitious hopes and grandiose statements, and that's what we clip this piece from. Can't Israel also be an Israelite, as in the sense there are Levites, Kohanim, and Israels? Meaning that this is to address the people and not just well, the leadership? Well, no, that, that, that if I say Shema Yisrael, I'm also saying, listen, Israelite, listen yourself, in singular, and not just in plural. Because Yaakov was known as Israel, too. Yes, so that is true. It could be, it could, when you say, we need to listen... Another interpretation is not just we as Israel, as Jews, plural, but hey, Israel, hey, Israel person, listen to yourself. Absolutely. So there is the piece of who it's addressing in that sense, 100%. The other piece worth noting, and this might even feel controversial, is that in the text, the Shema is not a big deal. It is literally just like a line that we move past. It is not uplifted as a big deal. But for us, in our theology, in our blessing, the Shema is a very big deal. And so we have to stop and say, what is it that made Shema this very big deal? Just by show of hands, who stood when they were a kid or when they were growing up during the Shema? I come from a background in which you sat. You sat because the blessing before the Shema, there was blessings before the Shema, so you sat. And other people, generally in the reform tradition, come from standing. And everyone thinks that that's about the prayer of the Shema. Because a prayer that is so important, so monumental to our tradition about the establishment of one God must be standing. But actually, that's not where it comes from at all. You see... The reason that we have this idea of standing, 
I lost it, but that's okay. I'll explain it here. I still know it. Is that the Shema was told that it's such an important prayer that you shouldn't change your state between blessings to get to it. Don't stall. Which means if you grew up in a Reformed tradition, the likelihood is you said the Shema directly after the Baruchu in which you were standing. So you stand. And if you come from a conservative tradition, the likelihood is that you had Shema and her blessings, which is the name of the series of blessings surrounding it, in which case you did not go straight into the Shema. So you were sitting. It was less about the the interpretation of the Shema and more about the will to rush into saying it. Now that has become very contentious in a lot of spaces. I literally say during services, if it is your tradition to stand, please stand. If it is your tradition to sit, please sit. But I have half a mind to be like, by the way, that's not the design. The design of the prayer was that you don't waste time to get to it. Because speaking basic universal truths are important for the foundation of the way we operate, how we live our lives, how we walk through day to day. And so what happens is this prayer that was not important inside our text becomes important because we're able to use it as a foundational statement. Why do I care about using it as a foundational statement? Because I already told you, it's a conflicting sentence. It's a sentence that says, our God, which we know is supposed to be the only God, and therefore you have to stop and go, why didn't you just say, our God is one. Like, if you really wanted to get both in there, why don't you just say, Shema Eloheinu Echad. Our God is one. Why say, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Why say both? Unless there was, in fact, a question as to God. A uncertainty as to God. This idea of how we define God you would think the Shema is helping give us clarity to the idea of our theology. But from where I'm sitting, all the Shema does is very, very aptly give us pause and a level of being unsure of our theology, which might in fact be the most definitional piece of Jewish theology, to have a level of doubt and question and lack of being sure. I once uh, was instructed by a rabbi in, in an exercise where you say the Shema and you put the accent on the different words and it has a whole other meaning. So, for example, you say Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, that is a different emphasis than Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, or if you say Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, anyhow, I won't go through all of it, but it's a very interesting exercise that he put us through to emphasize each word differently, and it takes on a completely different sense to it. You know, I, that reminds me of something that a teacher once taught me. Some of you have seen me do this before, but others have not, so let's, let's have some fun. Let's see, here we go. What does this say? Who on Zoom can tell me what I typed? Who reads God is nowhere? Who reads God is now here? Now, which one is it, right? It could be God is nowhere, and it could be God is now here, and the emphasis and the pause and where you leave the spacing, and that's generally something that I show when I'm looking at 
cantillation and marks in Torah because it doesn't have punctuation, but it actually remains true of how we do emphasis. And so, yes, the way you say the sentence might even change. But what else? When we're looking at this Shema Yisrael, listen up, people. Here are two things that seem rather simple that might get along and also might conflict. Our God is Adonai. Adonai is one. You hope that people actually begin with a certain level of speculation. If our God is one, why is it our God instead of the God? Why is it Shema Yisrael Ha? Or Adonai, I don't even know which way you would do it. Ha Elohim, or like it did. Why don't we just imply the God? Why is it important that we say our God? What do you think? It's okay if you don't. I mean, I'm happy to answer Obviously, that. Obviously, I mean, it, it's a connection that we feel that there is a connection between us and God. When we say our God, it's almost an embrace. So Rabbi Daniel Landy says that Shema Yisrael is a doctr- uh, doctrinal mitzvah. It's the affirmation of God's unity as commanded in the first verse. By unity, we mean that God is incorporeal, indivisible, and utterly unique. Right? Essentially, God is incomparable. So any of your levels of logic and your ideas of physics go out the window when it comes to God. Shema is permission to be unsure about God. And by doing that, defines the Jewish tradition and the idea of wrestling with God by saying a core pinnacle definition of our faith is that we aren't sitting with concretized belief in God, that our belief in God constantly has to be challenged, that our belief in God constantly has to be pushed back. I met with a student today who said, I don't know what I believe about this whole God thing. And I, yeah. Doesn't, doesn't Israel mean struggler with God? Israel means to wrestle with God, yes. Right. It means so the, the very name, we are God wrestlers. Correct. And we say this sentence in the morning when we wake up and before we go to bed. Now you might say, Rabbi, that's not true. We say it in Shacharit and if you're in an, uh, a more observant home, you say it in Mariv. Actually, the reason we do that is the rabbis are like, we cannot guarantee that people are saying blessings at home. They're probably a little groggy in the morning. They haven't had their coffee yet. Their kid came into their room at 5.40 in the morning. That's not a specific example, for instance. Um, but that they maybe forgot to start their day with blessing. So because of that, and because we're not worried about saying the Shema too many times, we'll just say the Shema during Shachari to guarantee that they said the Shema. And then we don't know what they're going to do right before bed. We don't know their bedtime rituals. We don't know if they're having a cup of tea, if they're taking a walk around the block. Like We don't know. So the one thing we do know is they're here for Mariv. Let's say the Shema again for Mariv. But you don't say the Shema for Mincha. You only say it for Shacharit and Mariv. You say it at the beginning of the day and the end of the day because the rabbis actually prescribe that you say it right when you wake up and right before you go to bed. Does anyone know why? The rabbis are very afraid of sleep. You see, the rabbis akin sleep to be like a 70th of death. They believe that there is a level of fear that one should have about sleep. Now, by the way, this is a very important piece for me because that's not my philosophy. Now, maybe it's because I do have three young kids and I believe sleep to be one of the greatest gifts to my life. But the rabbis don't understand it. 
They haven't gone through sleep sciences. They don't understand REM cycles. They don't understand any of it. And they think every time you close your eyes and let yourself escape into the subconscious, let your, your consciousness fall asleep, you are risking not waking up. And therefore, the rabbis say, there's a cure for that. Faith in God. If right before I go to bed, I say the Shema, and right when I wake up in the morning, I say the Shema, then I've said the Shema right before this moment of fear, and I've said the Shema in appreciation. Now, though that's not the prettiest understanding, because there's a kind of, there's a darkness to it. Remember that we also say the Shema inside of our vidui, because of vidui, because of confessional. And so the reason that the rabbis have a say it at night is actually a level of faith and belief in God that just in case we don't wake up, we have said these prayers. And when we wake up, it's an appreciation for God because we've woken up. We use the very prayer that the rabbis own is complex and kind of hypocritical a little bit and adding lots of speculation into this world. We use that as the core base of our engagement with just waking up each morning. Can you talk about some of the customs, like closing the eyes and and, and that type of associated with Shema? So sure. Uh, just again, show of hands, I, I can see on the screen in both here, who grew up with or, or just learned, whenever you learn the blessing, to cover your eyes when you say the Shema? Okay. Who grew up with the idea that you actually make a shin with your fingers and put it over your forehead like this and say the blessing? That's how I grew up. I grew up being taught that you do this. Not this, not this, this. Taking a shin with my three fingers and placing the fingertips on the forehead. And therefore, I'm obviously not actually covering my eyes, but I've clearly blocked my eyes. To answer the question of why we close our eyes, we have to go back to see these words. Hold on one minute. While you're looking for that, I want to add one more custom that I practice, yeah, and that is sometimes I'll hold the siddur in front of me so my words echo off the siddur and the siddur echoes back to me. It's a way of connecting with the Jewish tradition at that particular point. Instead of my hands over my eyes, I'll, put, use my the siddur, I'll put the siddur over my eyes, and sometimes when I'm in a congregation and I hear everyone else saying the Shema, it bounces and reflects off the siddur into my ears that adds to the experience. So here's the answer of why we close our eyes, and I love that. Take a look at the screen. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. I've gone ahead and bolded the last two letters, first of the word Shema and then of the word Echad. Does anyone know what Ayin Dalid is in Hebrew? Ad, what is Ad? It's a witness. So you're looking at, that's different spellings, not incorrect, odd, but this is, this is like an ed, right? This is a witness that each time we say the Shema, we actually witness the acknowledgement of our tradition and of our theology. So one reason that one says that we close our eyes is that if we aren't closing our eyes, we're focused on all these other things in front of us and we're not getting a chance to witness the theological implication of the Shema. But there's actually another tradition as to why we bold those letters. Because if you change to an aleph and a resh, instead of an ayin and a dalid, you get 
Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohinu Adonai Echar. Perhaps Israel, Adonai is a, our God, is another. The rabbis are so afraid that we may end up typoing and the typo may end up crippling our theological implication that the rabbis bold the last two letters and say, your job as witness is not only to witness theological implication, it's to safeguard this blessing. Don't let this end up getting mixed up. Because if you do, it might cripple our theological implication. It might instead say, hesitation, Israel, our God might be another. Yeah. And and if you listen sometimes to our Cantor Chaim, when he says Adonai Echad, he will really stress the D, the the Dalad. Adonai Echad. Correct. To make sure that it's clear that it's Echad. What are your thoughts here? There's a lot to this idea, right? The Shema, again, where is the Shema inside of our blessings? It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. What happens towards the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 5? Let me build you up to it. Chapter 5 is the Ten Commandments. That's 6 through 21. The response of the people, that's 22 and 23. The elaboration of the Ten Commandments, that's 6, 1, uh, all the way through, uh, all the way through has this elaboration of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, no other gods, is 6, 1 through 11, and that is where we find inside of that this piece. It's a response and an elaboration to this notion of the Ten Commandments. So if that's the origin of the Shema, and then we recognize this blurriness about the Shema, there's a few things that I think are worth zooming in in. The first the crafting of these prayers is brilliant because the reality is we could have written these blessings to be far more straightforward. The rabbis want to say Adonai is our God. Four words. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu. There's no rule that it has to be at least six words. The rabbis add that in intentionally. So the first question you have to ask is what are they trying to do? And then that actually goes into the proof of theological perspectives. Is Judaism a religion of, there's two words here, keva and kavana. Keva is the, the rigid structure of something, and kavana is the intention behind it. Is Judaism a keva-based tradition? Do the commandments, say the right thing, check the right box? Or is Judaism a religion of speculation and wrestling and misinterpretation and reinterpretation and growing interpretations and fear and hope and all these things at once? Now, obviously, I've leaned us towards one answer in the way I've said that sentence, but this is a really interesting point. The Shema implies that our theological structure that we question God and that we don't have to have such strong convictions each and every moment of our lives gives us space to breathe inside of our being Jewish. It's really hard, kids, adults, anyone, when you tell us this is what you have to believe because life gets messy and something in there is going to challenge your belief at some point. And rather than give something that's so brittle that it will snap if you push against its boundary, our tradition actually has a brilliant structure of elasticity. And the Shema is kind of ground zero for proof of that elasticity. By intent or by virtue of poor authorship? Okay, that's a very fair question. Intent or poor authorship? 
my first inclination is to tell you that Torah is not accidentally written. So they had a lot of time to codify, a lot of time to edit. In fact, I have a book of 20 different manuscripts of Torah and the changes between them. So if there was a chance that they could like clean up a mistake, they probably would have. So my first intention is to say, no, it's not accidental. But I'm also a firm believer that we breathe truth into our tradition. We do not live in a tradition that this is the way it was, and now we are consistently just stuck with its truth. By believing in it, by pushing back, by being creative, by digging deep, we breathe new life into our tradition. And the reality is, the answer is yes. Yes, it's both. Yes, it's whatever the newest implication and understanding is. I can know the history and the crafting of a prayer and still believe a later interpretation is the true truth. Much like science changes, much like ethics change, much like our societal norms change, right? I know some people say ethics don't change. I actually believe that ethics are a, a experience of each generation and that as truths are developed that like there are some ethical boundaries that shift and change, right? Do I think all of them? No, I think there are some kind of baseline ethics, but I do believe ethics are an interpretation of societal norms and truths. There's a woman named Judith Plaskow who kind of answers a little bit of this question, that God is one. On the simplest level, the Shema can be understood as a passionate rejection of polytheism. In the context of the commandment, you shall have no other God besides me, it is a polemic against foreign worship, right? It's reminiscent of the familiar Midrash that depicts Abraham destroying all the idols in his father's shop and sticking a club in the biggest idol's hands and telling his father it was that deity. And viewed in this way, the Shema supports a popular, although she says inaccurate reading of Jewish history, according to which Israel from its beginning brought to the world the idea that one God was the creator and ruler of the universe although inaccurate. This understanding of the Shema, however, does not address the issue of God's oneness. It defines one in opposition to many, but it never really specifies what it means to say that God or Adonai, the one who is and will be, is one. Is God's oneness merely a numerical singularity, or does it signify simply that rather than many forces ruling the universe, there is only one? To those of you who have studied Torah with me before, you've seen this, but I'm going to try and attempt one more time to make a whiteboard. Let's see if this works. Here, I don't know how well you guys can see it, but those on the screen can see it. I've written out the word Adonai, or yud heh vav -Hey, which we understand to be Adonai. You see under here, I've written down uh, Y-H-W-H. -H. I've explained in Torah study before. This is one of those reasons that you can't just read one book and understand an answer. Yahweh is not a name. Yehovah is not a name. It's a misinterpretation of a puzzle that we wrote into our most sacred book that then was read by people who weren't reading the oral tradition and decided yod heh vav -Hey is the name of God. But when we say yod heh vav -Hey, we say Adonai. Why? Because yud hey vav hey with the vowels of Adonai are a symbol that we use to explain God. But here's the interesting part of the symbol. yud hey vav yihiyu, everything that will be. hey vav hey hava, everything that was. 
Yud Hey Vav Hey is just a puzzle that says theologically what and who is God, everything that ever was and everything that will be. Not an actual name, not an actual definition, but instead a puzzle. A puzzle that explains oneness. A puzzle that explains that our God, the oneness of our God, is that all moments of time and experience connect back to this one truth. The murkiness of the Shema is what led me to my theological understanding of God. And I invite you to hold whatever understanding you want, but I'll, I'll share mine. And again, some of you might have heard this before, but I'll, I'll, I'll share it again because when you find your universal truth, you find that it often percolates. And so I even shared this today with a bat mitzvah student who told me her great skepticism that there was some God in the sky. I said, Judaism believes in the three omnis. What are those of God? There's omnipotent, right? Omniscient and omnipresent. We have a God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. What is there more of in this world? Things that we've discovered or things that we haven't yet discovered? I would say I'm a firm believer in the haven't yet discovered is more powerful. And I'm even more firmly in the belief that that scale will never tip. Because each time you discover something, you discover at least 10 more things that you did not know and that now need to be explored and discovered because you open a new window and a new door to a new gateway to a new depth. There will never be a tipping point in which what we know is greater than what we don't. Which means the most powerful thing in this world is the unknown. Now, where are all the answers to the universe? They're in the unknown. As you discover the unknown, as you seek the unknown, as you work through science and exploration to learn, you dig into what isn't yet discovered and you find truths. The answers to all your life's questions and all the things unknown in this world are in the unknown. The all-knowingness of the unknown. And where is the unknown? Where is it? Yeah. I remember when we realized, what was it? Einstein said a hundred years ago that there was like waves inside of sound that was right in front of you and everyone's like, cuckoo. But like then a few years ago, we finally had the technology be like, whoa, he was right. The unknown is right here. The unknown's over there. The unknown's on the other side of this world. The unknown is underground. The unknown is in the sea. The unknown is in the sky. The unknown is everywhere. The unknown is all present, all knowing, and all-powerful. And because the Shema leaves just the right amount of blurriness and confusion and complexity and not hypocrisy, but like, you know, a little tension there, I'm able to firmly sit with the notion that Adonai for me is a giant question mark. And that gives me all the faith in the world in God. Because what greater thing is there in this world and motivation is there in this world than the unknown? And it takes away a lot of those obstacles of faith that come into play when you try to give too concretized a view of theology, too solidified a view of the divine. Now, again, that's my interpretation. And everyone's interpretation can be to their own. But what the Shema says is it is our ability because it is our God to figure out what that means Adonai is. 
Yeah, but you're equating the unknown to some kind of consciousness or some kind of something. Um, I mean, I had a grandfather who used to tell me, because he didn't believe in God, that if you shot a little rocket up into the air and it went on forever and ever and ever, it would never get to heaven because there is no end to the universe. It just keeps going. So that's his concept. There's, there is yeah. no God because there's just infinity out there. How do you connect that infinity, that unknown, with something that you can call God rather than a great emptiness? Because our tradition showed us that a name is a placeholder and a name has symbolic power, but a name is not a definition. Adonai written as yod heh vav with the vowels of the word Adonai doesn't mean that that is God. That's our placeholder for that unknown. For me, the fact that that rocket never stops is proof that God is everlasting. It's actually the opposite. You see, what you can't take away from a person who understands God as the unknown is that means anything you say just absorbs into that. For me, knowing there is something grander is the greatest gift I can have. I don't need to disprove it to feel its existence. I think a large amount of faith in this world relied upon concretization, right? For the Christian world, which is a billion people, for the Muslim world, which is two billion people, they had to define a specific character all the way down to it to give this larger grasp. Now, the Muslim world less so than the Christian world. The Christian world, it really has a, a very much defi- definitionally. But what Judaism says is like, we're not going to even go there. We'll give you a bunch of different interpretations. We'll give you theological representations. But when Moses asks to see God's face, God's like, can't do that. You were talking about, I think, about confession before death. Vidui, yeah. Yeah, so without knowing much about that, that then reintroduces the idea that there is an entity to whom we confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. There is an entity to which we have a relationship with. And that seems counter to the idea that God is everything and nothingness and just the expanding. It it is. Why? uh, I guess when I think about confession, I think about a conversation with a, with some sort of sentient being, not, not just a, um, airing of grievances, you know, myself personally to no one. So without going into an extra tangent, though, I did promise that we'd go into some of those, so I'm not forgiving any of it. The Kabbalists also have a definition of God that fits right into this unknown, and others of you again have heard me talk about, is this idea of the clay vessel. In fact, I think I've shared it at one point during a sermon. The clay vessel is the Kabbalist interpretation of what God is, and the the creation of the world was the destruction of the vessel. And the shards of the divine went into the soul of every living creature on this earth. And when you talk to a person and something clicks, when you find a group and feel like home, when you find your besheret and feel a true connection, what you're doing is you're allowing sparks of the divine to get close enough to each other to feel the wholeness again. Even the Kabbalists don't need it to be a deity in the way you're talking about. They need it to be a presence. When we confess, when we say vidui, we're speaking to our own soul, or we're speaking truth to the world that deserves it, or we're speaking truth to the unknown, which has the capacity to contain our truths. 
I actually don't think any of these theologically have the implication that it has to be some uh, humanoid-type being. That's what we do when we have a difficulty grasping a relationship to something unknown, to something that we can't draw, right? What this is really coming down to is you can't doodle it. Most truths can be doodled. Therefore, they can be equationed. They, therefore, they can be picked apart and they can be looked at and manipulated. But the oneness, not the number one, oneness can't be because it takes a depth of faith that goes beyond the doodle pad, goes beyond being able to simplify it down to one. It's why if you ask, uh, the rabbis will tell you that when they ask Rabbi Akiba what's the most important thing in Torah, Akiba doesn't say God. Because that's too simple. What does Akiva say? We have to Yeah. Love. Love people. The rest is commentary. He makes God commentary. Why? Because our God can handle it. Our God can absorb it. And the reason I can say that with certainty is the blessing of the Shema. A blessing that was, I'm going to go with intentionally structured in such an ambiguous way that it causes both doubt and strengthens itself within six words. That is the core symbolic understanding of how we're supposed to hold Judaism. We're supposed to wrestle with it. We're supposed to be a little uncomfortable with it. We're supposed to keep coming back, engaging with it again. It's going to be simple enough that we can contain it, six words, and complex enough that we're never going to stop thinking about what it means exactly. That's, in some ways, a much simpler construction than some of the other things we'll look at in this class. But its implication is by far the most complex because it simply refuses to give you concrete answers by giving you two concrete answers that remove the ability to call either one solid fact. So you and I are at different places in our life, age-wise. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I I was really taken by your explanation of not knowing the truth and never being able to find it. And to me, as I I'm, I'm closer, hopefully, to the end of my life than you are, without getting depressed about it. Um, I know I will never know the truth. Yeah. I will never know what God is. What God what God means. And so the question is, how do I live? Not how do I try and know the unknowable? And that gets to what you were saying about Rabbi Akiva, and that is, I'm not going to spend my old, all my time on a mountain trying to figure out what God is. The real question is, how do I deal with my family? How do I deal with my friends? How do I deal with society? And that, I think, which I think that follows from what you're saying that we can try and know God in some kind of an abstract sense, but we'll never know. Certainly not in my life. Maybe at the end of your life, it'll be clear. But every, everybody would like, you know, for some guy to come down off the mountain with a beard and say, I, you know, everybody, I am God. You know, that's the old, the old second coming thing. But um, we'll never know. And so does that mean there is no God? Or does that mean I need to concentrate on how I live? 
vertically so, insist upon looking for some old guy with a beard how you know perhaps god will look different uh, how will we recognize deity when we see deity yes if we're looking for only one body I mean, look, I mean, if we're going to follow logic here again, if we're all made B'Tselem Elohim, which I noticed the time I didn't even go down that tangent, there was a good one to go down about about atheism and loving all people and all these things. I'm halfway there, so I'll just say it. The rabbis believe that atheists actually have a, a disadvantage when it comes to treating all people with respect. Why? Because we believe in B'Tselem Elohim. We believe that we're made in the image of God. But we don't look alike. And everyone on this earth together doesn't look the same, which means that God can't look like any of us, or God is therefore not B'Tselem Elohim to another group of people. Meaning God cannot be a dude with a beard coming down a mountain, and can never happen. And God actually can't even have a corporal body, because if, if God does, then God will look more like some than others. And so the rabbis say, if you believe in God, then you believe in B'Tselem Elohim, then you better treat everyone with respect because they're a reflection of the divine. But they say they feel bad for the atheist that doesn't believe in God because there's no driving force of goodness. Now, that's a much larger conversation, and there's a lot of pieces to it, but it's fascinating that they actually baseline that their reason for belief in God is about ethical, kind treatment of society. So I'll leave you with this because I can I know we're over time. I've drawn here on the screen. I'm hoping you on Zoom can see it. I don't know what's going on with this this one here. Uh, a box with a dot in it. I had a professor who taught me this box. Well, he he taught me that this box is Judaism. That dot is what you learn in rabbinical school. That was a dark day, by the way. But I actually believe that this box is rational thought and experience in this world. And that dot is us and our awareness of the world. But God is outside of the box, which means God is in and outside of the box. We are experiencing God while in the box, but we're going to work our whole lives to get as close to truth as we can, and we will still get stuck by the boundaries of our existence. And and God is beyond it, which means we are inching day by day towards the beautiful truths that we can discover but we have to be more than satisfied. We have to be appreciative of the fact that we aren't going to have to discover the fullness of truth, that we are protected by an experience that we've been given in this world of the rational existence of this life. That's a gift God gave us so that we have the means to operate and explore and experience the divine inside of a level that isn't going to drive us crazy. Because it says it in the text, Moses, I will not show you my face. Because that will be the end of your experience. I'll show you the back of my head, which feels like such a like, I don't like mobster move. Like you can talk to the back of my head, but like it was actually a loving move. I won't expose you to this level of truth because it's beyond our ability to take it and find something real with it. At the risk of just, you know, reducing what we've just done for the last hour to nothing. He can cut it out of the podcast. Don't worry. (laughs) You know, my most the moments in my life where I've felt most connected to God or most spiritual or most in awe have been moments without words. So yeah. like, you know, not moments of prayer, but moments of giving giving birth or hiking and seeing something beautiful. I mean, those those moments were devoid, utterly devoid of words. Yeah. And the most spiritual for me. And how often are those moments? Exceptionally rare. And prayer is the continuity between them. 
It's the opportunity for us to have a connection to the divine and experience that's moving in between those exceptionally rare moments. Because guess what? The rabbis believe in spontaneous prayer and, and divine moments too. They just also know that the majority of our life isn't the gift of that. And so we find expression that connects us to those moments that allows us to, to go back and to grab onto them. When I say prayer, you bet I'm thinking about the birth of my kids. I'm thinking about moments that have rocked my entire world in the good and have changed everything. And those add to the context of prayer, but those moments are fleeting and, and, and they're rare. And so prayer becomes our expression inside of that box of rational understanding. Prayer becomes our ability to do our best to connect to those moments and do our best to reach out for the next one and do our best to recognize that God is there even when we're not having those special moments. So throughout this class, that's part of what I want to look at. I want to look at a prayer, what the rabbi's intention was, what the meaning behind it theologically is, and then give us a space to decide, how are you going to hold that prayer? Because you know what? This is not an answer as to how we hold the Shema. This is an answer as to how we can add depth to it. And now you will stand or sit or close your eyes or say each word with one breath. That's another beautiful interpretation or rush through it or do any of the different ways. We do not prescribe how to hold this prayer. We give you the background and the, the knowledge of how it was constructed so you can make that choice best for yourself. I appreciate everyone who came to learn today, um, and I look forward to continuing this, this lesson when we look at our next blessing next month.